Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Gadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. This week, I'm joined with Deputy Editor Nathan Ingram. Hey, Nate. Hey, Dev. How's it going? It's going okay. And we also have Ben Elman, podcast producer here, who'll be chiming in later. Hey, Ben. Hello. Hello. And we'll have a special guest on in a bit, Paris Marks, the noted tech critic. He has a great newsletter, is going to be joining us to talk about, I think, a pretty wild story. But before that, Nate is also going to be talking about the new Spider-Man 2 game on PlayStation 5. And we've got a bunch of other news. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. I really like Pocket Cast, so give that a shot. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcast at engadget.com. And uh, yeah, folks, uh, we are still kind of uh, paused when it comes to our live streams, but I'm looking at ways to bring that back. So let us know. Let us know if you're still into that. Podcast engadget.com. So, Nate, I brought you here today because you reviewed Spider-Man 2, the latest big-budget release on the PlayStation 5. And we've talked before about these massive uh, Sony games. I feel like... um I feel like you're you're just on the hook for them all the time, right? Like you are in the bag for the big Sony games. I am in the bag. I have to admit it. Uh, I like Spider-Man, but he's not like a favorite right. superhero of mine. But I played the 2018 game... Uh, like a year after it came out or so. And I was just like enthralled with it because they got webs swinging around the city so perfectly. Like one of my favorite, real me- good. Yeah. one of my favorite mechanics in all video games that I played in the last 10 years. Uh, you can build a game, you can build a game around that mechanic and how well they rendered New York city. And it's just like a playground of fun as far as I'm concerned. And of course, as usual with the big Sony sequels, I think of like Horizon uh, Forbidden West, uh, God of War Ragnarok. This one follows in the same tradition of being bigger. Everything is bigger. The stakes are higher. Uh, But in this particular case, it doesn't reach the point of bloat, which is what makes it work so well. Uh huh. Because I feel like that the first game kind of suffered from that. Like I did love the mechanics of it. I love the characters, and that game also introduced Miles Morales. Like later on, like it had a good storyline. It was really good, except. I am so tired of open world games where it's just like all you get is a big map and on every corner of the map are these little things to collect or little, you know, activities to accomplish. I'm just like, I wish it was more focused. And we ended up getting that game with uh, the Miles Morales game, which basically launched with the PlayStation 5. I thought that game was perfect. I loved that thing. How like where does this weigh in uh, compared to the first Spider-Man or the Miles Morales game? Yeah, good good question. Um, The world is bigger. Right. You can go to Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, they aren't fully rendered like Manhattan is, but you get large chunks of those boroughs, which is. Oh, I'd love is, to see which chunks they get. Yeah. Yeah. You can see a lot in Brooklyn uh, for sure. And 
that's cool because obviously the like layout of those parts of the city is so different than Manhattan. There's less skyscrapers. So the web wings come in handy there, which is a new feature where you can like glide around the city versus swinging. And once you get the hang of that, jumping between those two mechanics is a super fun way for traversal. Um, there, I think there are less of the little fetch side quests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's like a handful of like, there's, there's maybe three like side quests that are pretty like, big story driven stuff that augment the game. Those are great. And then there's some collectibles, but it's not as intense as like finding a hundred backpacks and taking a hundred photos. Like there's still things like that, but it's, it's not as overwhelming. And then there's a few other side ones, but I felt in, in general, they did a better job of being more judicious about that sort of activity. When I finished the main meat of the game, when I finished the story, uh, and some of the side quests and obviously picking up at these little goals as I went, I had about 65 to 70% of the game done, it said. So, you know, even without trying super hard to like go collecty collecty, I did a good job of getting like most of the key stuff. That's cool. And I know you're, you can play as both Peter Parker and Miles Morales in this game. Like, how does that balance work for you? I'm, I'm sure like certain story missions, you have to be one character. But how does the game balance, you know, having two Spider-Men? Good question also, uh, because they have very like the, the, the core move set is the same, but there's a lot of new special moves you get that differentiate their two uh, styles. And you can, you know, obviously upgrade those or swap in ones that you like better than others, which is cool. Um and yeah, there's some particular story missions where the story itself moves you between the two characters. Uh, we saw that in the demo that they showed maybe in, in June. They showed a good like 10, 15 minutes of gameplay uh, where you're on the river like chasing down Craven and the lizard. And it, it, that's a wild set piece. And yeah, you're, you're doing something as Peter. And then it says, oh, like he's going to go do X. Now, Miles, you do Y. And it switches seamlessly over to Miles. Now you're controlling cool. Miles. And it jumps back and forth between those points of view um that, that is ha- flashback to like 10 years ago with grand theft auto 5 which is i think that was kind of a big thing in in that game and rockstar was trying to have like this sort of like split you know split action across different yeah. locations yeah that's interesting uh i didn't play that but i believe you um it works pretty well here it doesn't happen in a ton of missions there's maybe like i want to say half a dozen at most where there's like these the really big moments in the game where like everything's happening and you're going between them the rest of the time there'll be like sections of a mission where you're you're peter and you do x y and z and then you finish that section and then it swaps back over to miles um but when you're in the open world you can switch between the two of them seamlessly if you're like oh i want to like just use someone else uh there's a handful of those side missions that are specific to each character so you'll you know if you try to start with those like you need to switch to to Peter or Miles, but yeah I think it's really well done. Uh, it's good to have the two different character perspectives. The story does both of them justice. I think overall you play as Peter slightly more in the main story, but like Miles gets some of the wildest moments in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I feel like both characters got got their due for sure. That's cool. That's cool. It's good to hear. I, from the clips I've seen, I also see they both call each other Spider-Man, which I think is hilarious. Like, it's a very much like the Batman cartoon series. Like, hey, Spider-Man, what's going on? Like, Spider-Man, please. And it, they're it, just pointing at each other, basically. It is. And I thought about that at first. I was like, oh, I know why they're doing it, because uh-huh. they don't want to reveal their identities. They right, can't say right. so-and-so That's true. That's true. Uh, when they're out in public anyway, right? So, um, But it is funny, because, you know, the closed captions, it'll say Spider-Man. There's a little icon for Peter and a slightly different one for Miles, so you can differentiate them. 
That's cool. Well, I mean, I'm glad this, you know, this ended up well for Sony. I feel like I didn't have, I, I didn't think that they couldn't accomplish this. This is a pretty, we are what, three years into the PlayStation 5 at this point, And it took this long for like, you know, a full on sequel to Spider-Man. We did get the remastered version of the first game. Did you ever play that on PS5? I haven't. I'm going to go back and try it though at this point, just because I had so much fun with uh, part two that I want to mess around with the original a little bit. Yeah, I'm intrigued uh, by that because that gets up to 60 FPS. And that's like the thing. I never finished the first game. Like I put a lot of time oh, into that. But it, it's, it's sort of like by the time, like it feels like the PS5 started coming pretty quickly, like soon after that. And I was like, okay, um, playing a game, especially a console game in 30 FPS, really, I, I will only do it if there is no other option, right? So now I have to go, uh, basically go buy the remastered version of that first game. You can get it as a combo pack with Miles Morales too. So that's something, um, you know, yeah, you so, mm-hmm. so part so the, the, the new one goes up to 120 if your TV supports it. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. I, I, Which yeah, I, I think really, Miles does too, I believe. I forget um, like what the exact setting there is. Um, there's a, for a, there's game, a bunch. Yeah. For a game like this, like I don't think you really need 120. It's more like that's, that's always great for like shooters and super fast paced games. Yeah. But I would rather have the balance of like 1440p with 60 FPS and maybe some of the fun ray tracing stuff. That PlayStation yeah, 5 I mean it do. looks it looks fabulous. The character models are are pretty great, especially the uh, the big villains. Like the lizard looks wild. Like the detail on this like lizard skin and teeth and stuff is great. Um, spoiler, also I think everyone knows this from the the trailers and so forth. But Venom is in the game. Venom also it's- looks terrifying i mean the black awesome. suit is on the cover of the game right or it's right everywhere, yeah so. i mean you all the previews have shown you play as peter with the black suit and if you know anything about spider-man you know where this is going and it goes and it, it's awesome it's really well done <laughs> that's cool glad to hear it's good nate like where does this rank among you know you've you've played all the major like playstation 5 exclusives at this point and all the big budget ones like where does this rank among sony releases for you at this point I think it's up there because, like I said, they they the story is lengthy without feeling overlong. The side stuff, it, it's very easy to like be moving around the city and jump into a new activity and then jump out of it and get back to where you're going, which I love. And um, I think like character-wise, like I said, like I'm not a huge Spider-Man guy, but I do find him to be a, a fun character most of the time. I mean, so, it's, like, it's a good time for Spider-Man. It's, yeah, like, it's fun. It's, it, it's a fun game. And I was going to say that in the last like six months, I've had a hard time finding a new game to latch onto. Um, like I, I, I played a lot of Tears of the Kingdom for our review of it. And when I was done with the review, I didn't go back to it much because it just felt like too much. And Spider-Man does not feel like too much. It feels like just the right amount and it just sucked me right in and I had no problem like banging out the main story in the like two ish weeks that I had. Uh, obviously I was playing a lot during that time, but like I never was like, Oh, I have to go back and play this again. I was always like down for whatever, like this story has great momentum. The game has the gameplay yeah. has great momentum. It's just fun to play. It's, it's, it's pure fun. Tears of the kingdom feels like I know I, I'm going to play this game forever. Right. So I'm not like in a rush to complete it. Whereas Spider-Man right. feels like there's a cohesive story. I do like this trend of slightly more a smaller and more self-contained open world games. Like I'm also playing Assassin's Creed. Uh, the new one was yep. Mirage. And it's, um, hey, it's very much classic Assassin's Creed. There's no more XP meter, right? There's no more leveling up. You get you gain new tools and new abilities through just finishing quests. But I really like the fact that it's just so small. Like it's not overwhelming with stuff. I follow the story. There are a couple side missions I can do. But it doesn't feel like a game that I'm going to be forced to play for like 100 hours or so to see everything. Whereas 
the last few Assassin's Creeds have just like they, they felt like too much. You know, I really yeah, loved absolutely. Origins. Odyssey was okay, and then Valhalla was just like I I, I don't need as much of this. I would say that Spider Man Two is the perfect opposite side of the Valhalla experience where instead of go they could have gone that direction right and just like thrown everything in there but they didn't they were they crafted a, a tight story tight gameplay like the, the skill trees aren't like totally bonkers and you can like engage with that stuff as much or as little as you want to I think um like if you want to like really tweak out your your moves and switch them in and out and like upgrade every single gadget you can do that otherwise like most of the time I would like every like handful of level ups I got I'd be like oh I should take stock and like upgrade a few things but it See, wasn't like I didn't like lose sleep trying to figure out how to like maximize my Spider-Man. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the game. Check out Nate's full review at Engadget.com. Thanks so much, Nate. Next up in news, we want to talk about Mark Andreessen, who apparently had some free time lately, enough time to write up something called the Techno Optimist Manifesto, which is his sort of declaration about what he believes about the world, about how tech is kind of the one solution for our future I found it kind of hilarious and kind of scary, but I wanted to bring in, you know, uh, somebody who can also help us break this down. Paris Marks is a podcaster at Tech Won't Save Us. He writes the newsletter Disconnect, and uh, he's a tech critic. Hello, Paris. Hello. Great to speak with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to chatting with you for a while, actually. And this seems like the perfect opportunity because uh, I can only describe this thing as batshit insane. <laughs> and also joining us in this discussion is podcast producer Ben Elman. Hey, Ben. I find this fascinating. Let's talk about it. So we're just going to dive right in here. Let's That's just dive right insane. in. Is, I there, mean, is so our starting point? Let's say the starting point is listeners. Um, first of all, go go right. Look up the Techno Optimist Manifesto. You will see kind of like the basics or don't, of what you know, this is. Or don't. Or don't. <laughs> but that, that is what we're referring to. It's this very long document where Mark Andreessen is known for just writing very long blog posts about his view of the future, right? He wrote something about AI, why AI is um, very important and will save us all um, uh, several months ago. This whole manifesto is his vision of the tech world, it seems, and also something um, that seems like the worldview of the effective acceleration crew that he is a part of. So those people who have E slash ACC, in their Twitter bios, they're usually tech people. They're usually the people who are all in on crypto and AI and uh, you know tech solutionism and things like that. Those folks, I, I especially like billionaires, especially VCs, I feel like they're kind of aggrieved right now. I feel like all the criticism coming from media and uh, other folks and people like Paris too is really getting on their nerves. So I don't know. I just imagine Mark Andreessen somewhere on like one of those tropical islands he owns he must own one or two or something and just like perhaps having a in an ivory of, tower perhaps in an ivory tower on an ivory colored beach or something but having a lot of time to sit down and write this thing which covers things like um his view of lies the lies media is selling about te uh, technology the techno capital machine his belief that like capitalism and technology is the will will save us all and his enemies which is just a downright terrifying. Like it gets to some scary stuff by the end. Uh, Paris, yeah, what's your first takeaway having read this thing? I, I think I think my main takeaway having read it is that it's it's like obviously these people in Silicon Valley are not often not 
your religious types, right? Like you obviously have the Peter Thiels who, you know, are, are openly kind of religious and, and, you know, kind of uh, faithful people, I guess. Um, but often I think you would find in Silicon Valley, a lot of people who would say that, you know, they aren't very religious, but I think that when you look at this document, um, you see this real kind of secular religion of technology, right? It's very much faith-based when you believe is a key word. Like every, almost every statement believes with believe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The The whole thing is through belief. And if you look at the types of things he's saying he believes, these are not often kind of empirical facts. These are kind of, you know, things that he feels really strongly are the case in society or how the world works or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's very well reflected in this manifesto and in this kind of larger belief system that he's putting out there. Um so I think that that's a key part of it. I think what you're saying about kind of how these tech billionaires are aggrieved, how they are feeling, um, you know, the fact that people are criticizing tech more and more is part of that. You know, that has been there for a little while. You talked about his AI manifesto. You can also go back to 2020 when he wrote that one, um, It's Time to Build, when he was really kind of championing the tech industry. But I think that there's another piece of this as well, where he's also trying to, you know, there's been talk in recent years of regulating the tech industry as well. Um, you know, the tech industry is also kind of in this kind of challenging or difficult moment as interest rates have risen and that has kind of messed up the whole business model that was based on low interest rates and cheap money. Um, and so I think that plays into that as well. You don't see him talking about crypto, but he is talking about how AI is essential for this future he's talking about, but also how we need to like embrace and and, and champion the tech industry. Um, and I think that plays really well for someone like him, who is obviously a venture capitalist and makes his money off of unregulated tech and kind of having these things uh, proliferate everywhere. Absolutely. And w one thing I want to quickly mention, like, who is Mark Andreessen, right? Like, he is, he is somebody, he was the developer of Netscape Navigator. And the younger folks on this, you know, listening to this podcast may not realize this, but once upon a time, you had to pay for a web browser. And I remember exactly when Netscape came out. Uh, I used to use Mosaic. I used to use the AOL web browser. And I think Netscape was like 30 bucks or something. It was a while until like, I think it was bought, did AOL buy it at that point and then just made it free or something. Um, but that was that was where he got his start. And everybody thought he was a genius. And then he started Andreessen Horowitz and started just investing like crazy. So that's who this guy is. You've probably seen pictures of him. You, you've definitely seen Andreessen Horowitz, the name. But he is somebody who's been in the tech world from a very young age, basically. Ben, go ahead. Yeah, so Paris, I wanted to ask a couple of table-setting questions before we got into this actual manifesto. And you mentioned the stuff that I wanted to talk about, so I'm going to try to compress these questions into one. So Andreessen Horowitz like bet big on crypto and Web3 a couple of years ago. That didn't pan out. You also mentioned like the high inflation, high interest rate environment that we have right now. I keep on thinking that all of this focus on artificial intelligence is to have a new shiny object to keep retail investors, VCs throwing more money into the pile so they're still excited about something. How much of that is true and how much of that am I just making up? Yeah, that, that's my view as well. Um, like you basically see the crypto bubble. You know, I don't think we can really talk about the metaverse having ever really driven a lot of investment, though they were certainly nothing. hoping. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were hoping that was going to be another big thing, right? And, and it didn't really work out. Um, 
but crypto was kind of the big one through the pandemic. You started to see that bubble collapse um, or, you know, start to deflate um, around November of 2021. And then through 2022, we started to see a lot of kind of the crypto collapses and bankruptcies and things like that with FTX kind of being like, you know, the cherry on that cake um, November of last year, I believe that was. Um, and so that was really what was happening to the crypto industry. And through that time, you were also seeing, you know, Western governments raising interest rates significantly for the first time in basically 15 years, right? And we know that the tech industry kind of based their business model on easy access to capital, low interest rates, so that, um, you know, this capital could not easily find um good returns just in the general market so they went into more risky endeavors and that benefited the tech industry because certainly you're going to have a lot of startups that you know fail that don't make anything but you're going to have some that really become massively huge right and so they were willing to take those risks on these companies um, that didn't have clearer business models and that benefited the tech industry and so then as these interest rates rise that you know the idea that capital is going to flood into the tech industry in the same way is not there. And so magically ChatGPT comes along as this <laughs> magic thing to kind of give the whole industry a boost, keep investment flowing into not just OpenAI and Microsoft and Google and whatnot, but these new startups that are trying to enter this kind of AI landscape. Um, and you also have on top of the investment piece of it, like it, it, it gives the tech industry another kind of hype moment to say, look, like, you know, we're changing the world again and blah, blah, blah. And I think like many of these cycles we're going to see, and I think we're already starting to see kind of the the uh, energy kind of come out of that cycle. Um, and I think we're going to see that like chat GPT and stuff doesn't really end up being the whole big transformative thing that um, the companies have been suggesting. I mean, also a part of this too is like, you know, it's not just crypto, but it's also the pandemic as well. And a lot of companies were investing in ways because people were buying more PCs and people were staying at home more to watch Netflix and they were over-investing in employees and things. Well, that's why we're seeing a ton of layoffs and things now. And uh, we'll talk about this later, Netflix bumping up its prices again. The companies are kind of reacting to the fact that I think at least the way tech usage is has been going is normalizing a bit because we were over-reliant on it when a lot of folks were stuck at home too. So it's a changing landscape, right? Between money not being essentially free with low interest rates and all this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about risk then because this manifesto is all about risk. It's all about going faster and faster and faster. And if mm. you even want to ask us to think to slow down, you are the problem. Absolutely. I And I, I think that like... It, this stuff kind of looks new now, but I think you can go back to the 2020 it's time to build manifesto and see a lot of these ideas already in there. Right. And this, that manifesto was released just a couple months into the pandemic. Um, and basically the idea was the tech industry is going to save us from the pandemic and all this economic slowdown and uh, stuff like that, that we're experiencing in this moment. Right. But kind of the, the core of that was to say, listen, the tech industry is delivering, um, you know, for the public, you know, is making the world a better place. Um, and the tech industry has been kind of um, not 
pushing itself like it has been in the past and that's actually bad for the world and we need to kind of use our power and kind of seize a greater degree of power within um, society to continue transforming uh, along the lines of kind of what the tech industry wants to see. And so I think that, you know, in this manifesto, you can see the kernels, you can see how that was like the kernel of what this has kind of become. Um, and, you know, as Devendra was saying, like, there's this, there are these like series of ideologies that the tech industry has been adopting of late. Um, you know, maybe listeners have heard of Teskreel, which is basically just this kind of group of ideologies, um, you know, everything from transhumanism and long-termism and rationalism and all this kind of stuff that um, has been associated with the tech industry. The term um, was previously in Mark Andreessen's uh, bio on Twitter. He's removed it now and replaced it with E slash ACC, um, effective accelerationism. And that's basically, you know, people have probably heard of um, effective altruism. You know, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was really big into that stuff. This idea that, you know, these people need to make a lot of money so they can funnel it into like effective philanthropy. Um, this is basically saying, let's cut out the philanthropy part of this. We just need to like push technology, adopt technology as much as possible. Um, and again, for someone like Andreessen, um, I think you can very clearly see how it benefits him, right? He's saying AI is a key part of this future. So don't regulate AI um, because we want these companies to continue growing. But he's also saying in general, don't regulate the tech industry. Don't try to rein us in because we are going to be essential to whatever better future is on offer. And I think that kind of the scary part here is that it's not just about, um, you know, kind of the religious things that I was talking about, this kind of faith in technology. But I think that there are some really kind of scary and kind of fascist adjacent ideas that are increasingly being communicated in these types of manifestos and what the tech industry is doing right indeed i mean one thing one thing i just want to mention real quick is like this reading this made me maybe think of uh the futurism manifesto by uh by marinetti which and, and he cites yeah, marinetti at the end he right? cites marinetti he does cite it like as one of the what patrons of uh patrons of this whole idea but Mar like that whole thing actually the mm -hmm. crazier thing there is that in the manifesto, he says, to paraphrase a manifesto from a different time, beauty only exists in struggle, so on and so on. He does not explicitly mention Filippo Marinetti anywhere except for the patron saints section at the very bottom. I don't think Ada Lovelace agreed to be a patron saint. <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing. No, seeing yeah. all these names here, it's like he just decided to draft these people into service here and say that they support his nonsense. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that too, but like we'll save that for a little later. But he never mentions this person by name because, yes, Filippo Marinetti wrote the Futurist Manifesto, and then 10 years later, the Fascist Manifesto, along with Mussolini and... Yeah, so if you've heard the term Futurism in art, in literature, in anything from like the early 20th century, um, a lot of proto-fascist ideas kind of going on there. And that, that was split up into all sorts of things. But fascism seems like very much linked to this idea of, uh, you know, relentless progress. Nate, I feel like you yeah. want to say something. Yeah, I was going to say that Paris, when you were mentioning um, this like growth at all costs, saying there was a couple sections that I, I took note of, one of which is we believe any deceleration of AI will cost lives. Deaths that were preventable by the AI that was prevented from existing is a form of murder. 
And okay, so that's a bold statement about uh, grow or die. Uh, and then similarly, there's something about uh, we believe there's no inherent conflict between the techno capital machine and the natural environment. So just saying, like, let's not worry about this stuff. It's all going to be fine. Right. Um, because he believes it. Not right. Because, because he believes it. That's the thing. <laughs> My thing with this document yeah. is that there's no actionable steps here to achieve these goals it's like i think that i can make a ship that'll take me alone to the moon by next summer i was reminded of uh, show me there there is a quote from the simpsons i think about a lot and that is kodos one of the aliens playing as bill clinton and when he has that speech my fellow americans as a young boy i dreamed of being a baseball intent but tonight i say we must move forward not backward upward not forward always twirling 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 (laughs) towards freedom I kind of got those vibes reading this. I want I want to really read a specific uh, quote from this manifesto too. Like one one of the things he says is, "We believe that we are, have been, and will always be masters of technology, not mastered by technology. Victim mentality is a curse in every domain of life, including in our relationship with technology, both unnecessary and self defeating. We are not victims; we are conquerors." It's a lot of it. I don't what. I don't know and, uh, what, what any of, of the is. things that I keep tripping up on, too, is what does he even mean by technology? It's such a broad term that it loses all sense of meaning here. Well, it seems like any any human made tool. And there the, the thing is, like, what is wild to me about this is because I, I was not only getting Marinetti vibes, I was getting very much Ted Kaczynski vibes reading this, too, which I remember but reading the mirror Bombers. image of Kaczynski, right? It's basically the mirror image because, you know, Kaczynski had the opposite uh, the Unabomber who, you know, killed several people and was mailing bombs and hand-delivering bombs to people. It's it's an awful thing. But his manifesto has been out there. He forced for he forced it to get published in major newspapers. It was something I ended up studying in the 90s when I was in high school. And his whole thing is against technology, right? Against industri- the industrial revolution and the industrial era. But his view of the world, the sort of like aggrievedness he, he feels against, um, specifically like when it comes to like, I don't know, even things like diversity and gender equality, like they both have issues with any of these ideas, right? Any of those are a distraction from their ultimate goal. Kaczynski's goal was to stop progress, basically. And in recent is progress at all costs. But it is kind of weird how the language and the overall vibe between the two feels very similar. When you say progress at all costs, I go back to another section here, which is that uh, we believe material abundance ultimately means more people which leads to more abundance. He says that we believe the global population can quite easily expand to 50 billion people. Again, I'd love to know how that's going to work. You know, when we clearly have limited resource, like it's like to deny that is just a ridiculous thought at this point. Um, I know he talks about leaving earth and going to the stars. Like, okay, great. Sure. Once again, yeah. Tell me me 50 billion humans in, you know, in the solar system or something, but not on the planet. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but he also he also talks about how kind of technology is going to allow us to kind of um, you know evade those limits, right? Because technology makes everything more efficient and more productive, and like blah blah blah, right? I, and I think that like the other thing I was thinking as I was reading this was you know if you go back to like the seventies, right? You really do have this melding of like the ideology of the tech industry and this idea that like technology in itself is going to make everything better and also these like neoliberal ideas that are emerging at the time right that 
the government is not good for anything, that we need to rely on the market. And like you very much see the fusing of these ideas um, within Silicon Valley. You know, people like Steve Jobs are like the prophets of, of these kinds of ideas, right? Um, you know, people think of back to like Ronald Reagan and they're like, oh, you know, he hated the government. He was all, uh, you know, kind of private market. He was also really big on the tech industry and like, I mean, he, he was a that. Californian, you know, like totally. that's where the, the founders of Wired, including people like Kevin Kelly, who's still out there writing stuff. And he's traveling the world taking photos now. Like I, I have read a lot of his coverage, but it is hard to it, it's clear, like the worldview of those folks has kind of led to a lot of the foundational. It's been the foundational philosophies for like this entire industry in a way, too. Yeah, absolutely. It's, just, it's fascinating, though, to think that like okay, these ideas are there. They kind of make their way through the next few decades, really shape a lot of what the tech industry does. But I think that in this moment, like one of the maybe inconsistencies, I think with Andreessen's um, manifesto is that in this moment, actually the tech industry is, you know, and it's always had close ties to the government, even when they've denied it. But in this moment in particular, it's fusing much closer bonds um, with the U.S. government and with the U.S. military, especially as the U.S. and Silicon Valley itself kind of ramp up their kind of Cold War mentality or whatever with China, right? This idea that Chinese technology is a threat to U.S. technology and as a result, U.S. kind of geopolitical dominance is really kind of bringing these two together. And we see the tech industry as well kind of being much more open about its interest in participating in kind of military projects and, and whatnot, right? You know, you think of the recent stuff with um, Elon Musk and Starlink, but now he's recently launched a kind of military specific version of Starlink that has not received very much coverage. Um, and he is kind of a, a glorified military contractor between SpaceX and the other things that he's doing. So especially when you think back to like the Italian futurism, Marinetti, things like that, when you brought up these comparisons between Silicon Valley billionaires and futurism in the past, some of the big pushbacks were, yeah, but like they were really into war and Silicon Valley is not really into that. And the other thing was they also had this kind of aesthetic movement as well. And I think Silicon Valley is certainly still lacking that um, unless we're I mean, counting. There, like, there is <laughs> like the Apple aesthetic, I feel like yeah, has certainly. That's fair. Yeah. There, the Johnny Ive aesthetic, like, oh, uh, polished aluminum. Like, it is a big thing that has infected our life because then Samsung kind of copied a lot of it too, the typefaces and everything. So yeah, it's it's not being looked at as like an artistic journey because these people these people abhor the liberal arts, but they love the things that shape their products. And there's certainly like aesthetics that go around that, right? You know, it's good that you mentioned the Apple aesthetic as maybe a primary like Silicon Valley aesthetic. It's very futurist, yeah. I was about to make some dumb joke about how like stable diffusion, like the, the very like maximalist art that comes out of stable diffusion is maybe part of their aesthetic also. But it's just like a chewed up version, a baby birded version of someone else's art anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just I like leave this us... manifesto is a chewed up baby bird version of uh, <laughs> the future. I mean, I had, when we talk about aesthetics, uh, it makes me think about just the, the writing and the sheer ineptitude in this. Uh, he clearly like but... every night he just sat down wherever he was, like wherever on the planet. And it was just like, I have a thought. Like yeah, this is his, this is his notes app. These are collections. Neil Patel at the Verge <laughs> said, "This is some of the worst sentence level writing I've seen in quite a while," and that stuck with me as I tried to read it because it was just 
Yeah. So painful. I, I feel leave. like you're giving him too much credit, though. Like, I don't think he's on nice beaches around the world. I just think he's in his boring mansion out in Athens. I mean, he must be he's like a, stop, you know, poor people from living and stuff like that. Like the epic guy, just like in a really, uh, really boring office with no furniture or something. Yeah. Like, that could be him, too. Like, that could certainly be him. Um, I want to leave listeners with this one, this one tidbit, which infuriates me to no end, because at one point, he's talking about enemies, and it sounds really, really paranoid, really scary, honestly. But at one point, he says, our enemy is the ivory tower, the know-it-all credentialed expert worldview, indulging in abstract theories, hmm. uh, luxury beliefs, social engineering, disconnected from the real world, delusional, unelected, and unaccountable, playing God with everyone's lives with total insulation from the consequences. I don't. Could you possibly describe Silicon Valley billionaires? Yeah, are you yeah, looking in the mirror right coming now? Coming from inside the house. I Just, I did particularly love how he was calling out the communists and the luddites. You know, like you know, I think the luddites are experiencing a real revival at the moment. Real revival, yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's just wonderful to see how much it's really pissing off and getting to someone like Mark Andreessen. <laughs> yeah, the so number many of people times that communism came up was surprising. Yeah, that yeah yeah, and that's also a lot in Kaczynski's thing too. He is very much against communism and socialism in his thing. Anyway, this is a wild discussion. I'm glad to have you on to talk about this, Paris. You also have a book coming out, right? What's up? What's up with your book? Oh, yeah. My book came out last year, actually. It's called yes. um, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And I would say, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons I didn't read the manifesto until not long before we talked is that I'm also um, in the process of releasing a series on Elon Musk uh, over on the podcast, four-part series, two parts are out now, uh, called Elon Musk Unmasked. So, you know, if you're interested, if you're not tired of Elon Musk content, uh, there's that as well. Yeah, be sure to check out the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. And Paris, where else can people find you online these days? Oh my, uh, how many social media platforms are there now? Uh, I'm probably on <laughs> most of them. Uh, you know, just look up Paris Marks and you'll find me. All right. Thank you so much, Paris. Thank you. Thanks so much to Paris for joining us, folks. And let's move on to other news. Last week, right after we finished recording or the day after, Microsoft officially completed its Activision Blizzard acquisition. So that whole thing, that was a 21-month battle for a $68.7 billion deal, the biggest deal ever in the video game industry and one of the biggest ever in the tech industry. That whole thing is done. Oh, my God. Like, we, we've covered a lot of things around that, around different regulatory agencies fighting against it, uh, specifically the CMA in the UK. The EU had its own issues. And after all of that, like the, the main takeaway is the deal is happening. Um, some rights were sold to, uh, was it to Ubisoft, right? So that's like, there's like different concessions now. Um, let me get the specific thing. They feel super minor though. I mean, this, this whole saga to me just proved the fact that there's no way to stop giant corporations from doing whatever they want because... Well, at least at least we tried, right? So here's the other thing: Microsoft sold its uh, it sold a streaming rights for Activision Blizzard games to Ubisoft, and that was a big thing to win over the UK's approval. Okay, yeah, yeah, all these things. Like, there's also a 10 year concession to keep Call of Duty on other platforms like PlayStation and also Nintendo. So that is clearly pointing to like future consoles. But that deal is in there. Without any of this pushback, Nate, like we we wouldn't have gotten any of these things, right? Like in the past. True, but like what yeah. is what is the streaming rights going to Ubisoft mean to a consumer in the end? It doesn't mean like yeah, it, it means Microsoft does not fully own it and they have to relicense it back from Ubisoft is the thing. So yeah, it doesn't mean much other than Microsoft doesn't have full control 
over what those titles are in the streaming world. And I think like maybe the cloud streaming part of this was a little overblown. I think we were all more worried about the sheer size of it, what this could do right. to the overall industry, right? Yeah. Like it feels like it's just another example of like one company having just a little bit too much power in the industry that it's working in. Yeah. So straight, simple, simple. Some, some people me. are calling this like a complete failure of the FTC. And I will say, I remember when the WhatsApp deal went through. I remember when a lot of the major deals went through in the 2010s and there was like nothing like Facebook just bought Instagram for a billion dollars and they Nobody, nobody yeah. knew yep. enough to stop them. There was like no regulatory like is infrastructure really. Right. Well, to Facebook push back wasn't. Yeah. And, and Facebook wasn't as big and influential then, so it didn't feel like as big of a deal. But to me, Microsoft already is such a mammoth. Company. I mean, Facebook is now too, obviously, but or Meta. Facebook. Me. I mean, when Facebook could, when Facebook spent a billion dollars for a company, it was because they just had a billion dollars lying around that they could easily spend. So they were still pretty big at that point, just not as big as today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, we will keep tabs on like what all this means. It seems like, um, you know, Activision Blizzard games won't end up on Game Pass until next year, most likely. Uh, but that is the thing everyone's waiting for. Like that, that's the big yeah, that's the benefit big... for Microsoft here, for sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, we'll keep tabs on it. We'll definitely want to get Jeff's content on at some point to see like what this means for the overall video game world. We also saw news that X, aka Twitter, has begun charging new users one dollar per year to send tweets. Uh, it's the Not a Bot program which is being trialed in new zealand and the philippines i think this is so freaking useless but nate do i mean, think do you have any thoughts any, here i said does this have any chance of, of expanding more widely I, I oh suppose. absolutely yeah but but my notion is like twitter's x is terrible now they have long had a problem attracting more users like even going back to before musk like that was their whole thing it was like they weren't growing at the same rate as a as a facebook or you know even like snapchat at some point so adding another barrier to entry here seems like a real dumb idea and a dollar doesn't seem like it's going to be enough to make a significant revenue stream so i it's, don't know it's not about revenue doing. right it's a not a bot program because i don't know if you've spent a little time on x lately nate but it's garbage because everything is just spam. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, every, uh, sometimes I don't tweet my own personal stuff, but I retweet things for other folks and try to like lift up ideas. Everything out there is just like spam replies. Um, weird porn accounts, like replying to you, like just garbage. Really? It's pure garbage. It's so bad, huh? He, even though Elon Musk said like uh, spam was a big problem and he was going to solve it, he created a bigger spam problem with his stupid new blue check system. So this is kind of a thing to put, you know, push back against that. Um, they're thinking like, you know, maybe spam bots and spammers will not um, create accounts if they have to spend a dollar to do that. I've seen a lot of other pushback from people who study spam and, you know, um, hackers and things like that. Like these, these folks run thousands of accounts, like spending a dollar to, enable their ability to spew out spam is not a big cost at the end of the day so a lot of people think this won't amount to anything other than being a very dumb move <laughs> and it may spread wider who knows like elon musk doesn't really look at data even though he says he does but this is an idea that sounds like it could work you know like um i think like that's how he runs that's how he runs. It has it has surface plausibility yes. uh, surface plausibility but, for but sure. under any sort of you know scrutiny it falls apart mm-hmm Apple also announced a se a new $79 Apple Pencil with a USB-C charging port. This is not the second generation Apple Pencil. I'm very confused by this, but Nate, um, I feel like you have some some hands-on thoughts on this thing. I feel like I'm the right guy to break this down for you. Um, with the caveat that it is certainly super weird, but 
this, I think the notion of a having a cheaper Apple pencil makes sense for some people. Uh, the the differentiator that Apple is pointing to is that this new one, um, it doesn't have pressure sensitivity. And the reason they took that out as a cost saving measure is that they say they see there's like one level of people using an Apple pencil who are like doing, you know, advanced art and they really rely on those kind of features and, and they they push this thing. And then he's like, there's a lot of other people who mostly use it for like notes and sketching and like less intensive uh, work. And in which case so this one you know, you save, I think, 50 bucks over the Gen 2 one. So it's, it's significantly cheaper. Um, it's goofy in that you have to pl- charge with a USB-C, but it's better than the old Lightning one. That was uh, really, the, that was the one that charged at the bottom of like your, yeah, your iPad, basically. Yeah. Yep. So that one, um, that one is still exists, though, because that one does support pressure sensitivity. So I'm so have one of the and yeah. it, it's, it's very confusing. It feels like it's a stopgap to them getting rid of that other one, which I imagine will happen in another year. So basically, if you uh, want a cheaper Apple Pencil with pressure sensitivity, you should probably try to find old stock of the, was it the original first gen? Is that what they're yeah, calling they're it? Yeah, so they're still selling that one. But it only is compatible with uh, the older iPad. So like the... Ugh. the yeah, it, it's very confusing. Um, they did, I mean, they make it pretty clear on their site, like, here is what exactly works with each of these. But I think they probably should have taken this as an opportunity to cut ties with the old one and yeah. just introduce this new cheaper This is one. the second generation of the first model of the Apple Pencil, but it is not the second generation Apple Pencil. I'm... <laughs> This is such an Apple move. Like, I'm, I'm, oh my God, this is so dumb. Okay, anyway, $79 Apple Pencil with USB-C. Also, in other news, Netflix jacked up its price for the premium plan, for the 4K plan, to $23 a month. Um, also, the grandfathered basic subscribers, they're not, I don't believe they're offering that basic plan anymore. They aren't. But uh, that grandfathered plan is now up to $12 a month. What do you think about these price hikes, Nate? Because I'm, I think it's happening I've, really quickly. Yeah. I've, I've had it. Uh, to be honest, every single streaming service this year of note has raised prices. And I'm glad that Netflix didn't raise the price of the like 1550 one that sits right in the middle. It's it's I think offers uh, two simultaneous streams, but it doesn't have 4K. If you want 4K, you have to spend eight more dollars a month, which is a lot of money. Um, and, you know, I think about it. I'm like I, 4K TVs have been around for a decade. Um, I only got my first 4K TV three years ago. But in that time, when I think about the stuff that I can actually watch that's in 4K, Netflix, no. Hulu, no. Disney Plus at least has it. I had it on HBO Max, but now that HBO Max is max, you have to pay $20 instead of 15 to, to get 4K. So I no longer Wait, have 4K Wait, so you mean you don't, you don't want to pay for the 4K? No, it's too much money. If I was paying for 4K, it would be an extra like $30 a month across the different subscriptions I use. Like, it's crazy. It's kind of crazy. It is kind of like, wild, yeah. The fact that like, you know, I'm a fairly like, technology forward guy and yet i still am watching most of my content at upscale 1080p is kind of weird when i think about it yeah i mean it's it still looks good like your tv will make it look good it does totally it looks wonderful i never think about it but uh i mean at the end of the day i'm also like nate do you remember when vhs tapes were a hundred dollars you remember when we had to spend five, five to ten dollars renting things individually at best at Blockbuster? Or See, whatever, I still don't know? mind spending five bucks to rent something if I want to watch it. I'd rather have, I'd rather do that than have to like figure out which of the fifteen streaming services has it. I yeah, that's fair. Unless it's like an original on those services. Well, anyway, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, for what I do, and because I have to like review movies and stuff, I have to like keep all these services alive. But I do think it's annoying. Yeah. Like at the very least, four K should be standard right now. Four K should be part of the fifteen dollar plan rather than being this weird premium tier. Sure, make people pay for more streams, more simultaneous streams. That makes sense. But 
Yeah, just kind of. And a I mess. think you know the, the the overall thing I'm looking at is like we're we're reaching a saturation point where I think people are really going to be like I can't afford all of these like it's too much money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like the 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 notion of continued growth across all these services to me seems impossible because again like I'm you know an, an affluent white guy who who likes entertainment and even I'm like this is stupid I can't spend as much money on this. So, <laughs> yeah, like, you don't want to spend eight more dollars for the 4K. Shame, right. shame. I mean, I, well, I totally get it. I totally get it. Well, they, then when you add in all the gaming s- subscriptions got more expensive this year, yeah. music services are going up, like, we're getting crushed. We're, we are getting certainly crushed in some ways. Uh, I do want to say, this uh, This all came from an earnings report for Netflix, and uh, it actually looks like their uh, really draconian password sharing limitations uh, ended up paying off for the company. Like, paid memberships are up to $247.15 million, a 10% annual increase. So people yeah. did end up having to subscribe because they wanted to watch Stranger Things and Netflix stuff. So, hey, it, it that made a difference for them, even though everybody complained. I do think there's a good balance here because at the end of the day, like, if you like these things, pay for it, right? If you don't, if it doesn't matter for you, cancel the subscription. Like, it's that it's that simple. But I also think these companies should offer more. 4K is is bare minimum at this point. We also saw news about YouTube starting a new news hub, new news hub, that directs you towards reliable sources. This is a bid to stop, you know, misinformation. And I think this is a smart move. Basically, this is going to be an area where you can find live streams, on-demand videos, podcasts, and shorts that are specifically around authoritative sources. So like known media sources and not just random YouTuber ranting about something. Um to kind of keep people in a hub and to help them ensure that the information they're getting is coming from, a, you know, a more trusted source and random YouTubers. Any thoughts on this, Nate? I think it's a good idea. I would like to know a little more about how they're deciding what's trustworthy. Um, I feel like, you know, again, I haven't read their um, blog post about it. They, it's um, major news organizations. It sounds like, they, okay, in, it sounds like they're working countries. with, yeah. they're working with different organizations to sort of like, do some best practices. So that makes me feel good about it. At least Uh, I'd say it's definitely needed. You know, you mentioned just some random guy shouting on, on YouTube. And I think about, they added a podcast to the YouTube music app a few months ago. And when I go to my like explore section, that app, like there's a podcast tile and it's just like trash. Like I'm like, these aren't podcasts. These are just random people yelling on YouTube. That's what, that's Uh, what it is. Um, uh, There was like a little bit of serendipity I had on YouTube recently. Like I was just browsing around because I I got my big phone. I'm spending more time watching a little more video content on the big phone. What big phone do you have? Uh, The 15 Pro Max. And it's good. I will, I will talk more about that at some point, but, uh, I I was just browsing around and YouTube served me this Quest 3 like impressions video from look like a teenager or 20 like <laughs> a young girl with no it had like 40 views. She had maybe 5 followers. I'm like, "Why did YouTube serve me this thing?" Maybe because I've been searching about the Quest 3 or is it like actively trying to lift up unseen like things with low views so that people get more views. I was like, okay, YouTube thumbs up, subscribe to that channel. And it's just a girl like having like really good thoughts on this thing, not like professionally made, but interesting. So I do think like YouTube is thinking a little more about how it's directing people around its content. So yeah, let us know what you think folks about a special, you know, YouTube news thing. I would say I do get a lot of news from YouTube these days, but it's mainly because I'm watching you know, network feeds or, you know, I'm subscribed to things that deliver actual news to me rather than random YouTubers. 
Also, That's interesting. I haven't used YouTube for news much myself yet, but I just don't. I don't watch local TV. Like I don't watch oh, over the air anymore either. So it's like I I get a bunch of stuff from YouTube, and it's usually pretty good. I don't let, get a lot of garbage these days. We also wanted to quickly mention Amazon is now offering drone deliveries for prescription medications in um, College Station, Texas, which is an area where they've been um, testing Prime Air drone deliveries uh, since 2022. Uh, now prescriptions are going to be drone delivered. It looks like the drones um, will fly between 40 and 120 meters. They land at specific markers at people's homes for deliveries. So I don't, I don't know how this works, right? If you want drone you deliveries, do you, have to, yeah, do you have to like set up basically, yeah, a little helicopter pad uh, for the drones? Okay. That that seems I, I, I have not heard from people at College Station. Um, that is a really interesting town. That's where Texas A&M is. Um, yeah, I've not heard reports about people actually using this and enjoying this what would you like drone deliveries nate like you live in the city that would never work i do it wouldn't work but the notion of not having to go to the pharmacy is like kind of enticing i'll have to admit so it's, it's kind of uh, nice, yeah i kind of dig that but uh, you can if, get if stuff gonna... shipped already like through normal yeah, shipping channels i'm too lazy to figure it out though it's just a pain <laughs> it's <the same> <laughs> so i continue to just walk over to rite aid and pick it up yeah it's literally i mean four minutes listen if house. there's a mistake like they can fix it for you so that's a thing but anyway Amazon is testing prescription medication deliveries. I wonder how those things will fare. Like if they get left outside in a hot, you know, Texas summer day. Yeah. It's probably not good for medicine. That doesn't seem good. I could see capsules melting. Mm -hmm. A lot of things melting. Anyway, we'll keep an eye on that. I'm not a big fan of drone deliveries. I think that whole thing is garbage. Yeah, I don't see that taking off. It's like AI. It's like like chat GPT for deliveries. AI, unfortunately, AI is a thing that's going to happen. It's just like... Okay. Based on all of our testing, it's, it's more yeah, like crypto. GPT. It's more like no. It's yeah. a, you know what it is? It is flying cars. It is a thing Ooh, that yep. sounds cool, but if you think about it for a goddamn logistical minute, nothing works. Nothing works about it. So anyway, it's flying cars. Anything flying. Don't put more things in the air, please. Let's move on to what we're working on. Anything you want to shout out, Nate? Uh, no, I kind of just got off of uh, you know I got off of um, Spider Man two, so that was a, a big one. Um, I got some some other little like end of the year stuff cooking at this point as we're like kind of hurtling towards uh, the end of 2023. Uh, so yeah, we'll have I think our usual bevy of those stories coming up in the next month or two. It's that time of the year. We're also prepping for CS and doing all sorts of yes. stuff like, yeah, on my end, I'm still working on the big screen beyond VR review, which I am honestly liking more than I thought I would. So I'll talk more about that next week, but it's a really cool little headset not meant for anybody, right? It is not the Quest <laughs> 3. It's not the Quest 2. Nobody should buy this thing other than the weirdos who really love the Valve Index. But I will talk more about that. It's just funny. It's like a really cool thing for the VR niche. And uh, let's move on to our pop culture picks. Anything you want to shout way out? To get, way to get me to tune in next week. I'm curious. I mean, about it's, it's, it's one of those things. Like, it's very good at what it's doing, but nobody should buy this. That's ultimately it. Any pop culture picks for you this week, Nate? Yeah, I started watching Lessons in Chemistry on Apple TV. Uh, I read the book this summer and thought it was wonderful. And then immediately learned that they were making a series out of it with Brie Larson. And, and I was who like, doesn't love Brie Larson? Yeah. No, she's wonderful. Uh, she's wonderful in the episodes I've watched so far. Uh, I think so far the show has looked pretty faithful to the book. I'm sure there'll be some changes to make it work in the medium. But I will shout out both the book, uh, which I really, I devoured it in basically like two days. I'm looking up the author right now. 
Uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Garmus is the name of the person who wrote the book and it's a great read and the show has been great so far too. Awesome. Awesome. I want to shout out the fall of the house of Usher, which is on Netflix right now. I feel like every year we talk about Mike Flanagan's next series at Netflix and Sherlin and I have loved it. Like we love horror and we, we've loved all his stuff. So this is the guy who did the haunting of Hill house, the haunting of Bly Manor. And um, what's the other one? So one is one about an island. I, the name is escaping me right now. But anyway, I love this guy. I think this guy is fantastic. I've loved all of his horror films. He also did Doctor Sleep. If you watch that, be sure to watch the director's cut, which is a better movie. This is a series set in modern times that is semi-adapting a, ver- a variety of stories from Edgar Allan Poe. So The House of Usher is one of his stories. But The Raven is here. You know, The Telltale Heart is here. But setting us the backdrop of a very rich family in New York who is somewhat cursed. And I will say I'd recommend this thing if you watch Succession and you really want those people to die horrible deaths. You know, if you want those <laughs> how, terrible how, people to be punished. It's very much how that. horror is this? It's I mean it's it is full on horror. Like there are scary things. It's gruesome at times. There are jump scares, but it's also like really well acted. Like I love Mike Flanagan because he is such a good writer. He writes really compelling characters and he always casts some really Really, like, he has a troop of people he tends to work with, like Rahul Cooley, uh, or Coley, but they're also, like, Carla Gugino has been in a bunch of her, his work, and I have loved her so much forever. She is, like, an angel of death in this show. Can't really say too much about her character, but she is just, like, she is incredible and has a lot of fun. Bruce Greenwood stars as the father of this family. His sister includes Mary McDonald. Um Mark Hamill is in this show. It's kind of funny. There were scenes between Bruce Greenwood, who played Commander Pike, in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, Mary McDonnell, who was the president of Earth in Battlestar Galactica, and uh, and Luke Skywalker, like, in scenes together. I think that's just really fun. There's a great cast overall. Carl Lumbly's in this, and I love seeing him in everything. Flanagan also uses him well. So if you like Flanagan stuff, if you like good horror, and you just want, like, a cool, fun, you know, spooky October thriller, check out The Fall of the House of Usher on Netflix. That's it for our show this week. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by producer Ben Elman. You can find me online at, at Devinder on Twitter, Mastodon, Blue Sky. I'm all over the place. Nate, where can we find you? Uh, these days, I'm mostly using threads uh, at Nate Ingram over there. Of course you're on threads, Nate. Come on. Come on, man. Come where to, come to the cool go? kids. Come to the nerds. Every time, we, every time yeah. I pop on the podcast, you tell me to check out Mastodon, and check I never do it. <laughs> Anyway, email us at podcastandgadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. Thanks, folks. We're out.